0: And I know you already know this, uh, and our listeners probably do too, because podcasts have been telling them this literally all month. Uh, But this is Tripod Month.
1: Oh, wait, it is? (laughs)
0: Uh, Even I think TBTL has mentioned Tripod Month, and then podcasts that uh, take this seriously have really been pushing it. So I was thinking, uh, and we were thinking for our fifth Friday show this month, since it's a month where we get five Fridays, that rather than do any actual work... We would celebrate Tripod by sharing with you, the listener, some of our favorite podcasts that aren't TBTL, and we've polled our colleagues, and we're going to do that now. We're going to give intros, and then we're going to play a few minutes of these different podcasts. So if you don't like it, just just stick it through, because we'll get to one you will like, I promise. There's a little bit of something for everyone here. And Anne, if you don't mind, I'm going to start. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to bring the podcast Crime Town Uh, which is a Gimlet production, and I think their most serious and, I would think, most successful uh, project to date. I'm a big fan of Reply All, too, but um, Crime Town's really serious, and they're doing a really good job with this investigative journalism podcast. Crime Town uh, explores the, the mob and the crooked history of Providence, Rhode Island, and the reason that it fascinates me is because we only moved here a few years ago, and I always had heard that Providence in Rhode Island was sort of where the mob was, and I knew there was a big Italian neighborhood, but I never knew any of the real history. And now, listening to this show, they'll mention landmarks of places I'm going, or am, or driving around as I'm hearing them mentioned. And uh, the sons, often, of people who were these big mob lawyers and stuff are now like current legislators in Rhode Island, and it makes me realize that the history of all of this is not that far removed. It's really compelling. They do a really good job telling the stories. They've sourced a lot of their information from books written by Rhode Island journalists and archives from the Providence Journal and the Providence Library. And it's just some really great stories. People may have heard of Buddy Cianci, the twice thrown out of office because he was convicted of crimes by the FBI and DA's uh, mayor (laughs) of Providence, And uh, they just do a great job, and it's hosted by Mark Smerling and uh, Zach Stewart-Pontier, the guys who did The Jinx, and they bring that same intrigue to Rhode Island. So we'll start our tripod episode with a clip from Crime Town.
2: Question, did he kick you? Answer, yes. Question, where did he kick you? Answer, on my right chin. Question, did he try to burn you with a cigarette? Answer, yes. Question, did you have a cigarette burn on your face after the incident? Answer, yes. In my left eye. Question. At some point, did the mayor swing a fireplace log at you? Answer, yes. This is a transcript of grand jury testimony from a victim of a brutal assault. An assault committed by the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, that's right. The mayor. A mayor in his ninth year in office, a mayor named Vincent Buddy Cianci. Good
3: evening. A statewide grand jury has indicted Providence Mayor Vincent
4: Cianci on charges including extortion, kidnapping, and assault.
2: The mayor of a major American city kidnapping and torturing a guy. Weirder still is what happened next. Buddy ran again, and he won.
5: You know, he was a gentleman. Besides his faults. You know, everybody has faults.
2: Buddy Cianci died earlier this year. His body was laid out in City Hall, and people here lined up to pay their respects.
5: He did so much for this city,
3: and we all love him, and we're all going to miss him. There was, there was nothing wrong with what this guy did. I believe that he just loved Providence too much, so he fell into this. That usually politicians fall into when they love something too much.
2: Buddy did love the city in his own way, but his shortcomings went well beyond one little incident of torture and kidnapping. There were criminal investigations, accusations of corruption, drug scandals, even a five year prison sentence. But we'll get to that later. The question now is why so much love for such a flawed man? Well, for people here, Buddy's faults weren't all that shocking. Because the thing you got to know about Providence, the city that Buddy ruled for more than 20 years,
3: it was a mob town. There was New York, there was Chicago, and then there was this little city in the smallest state in the Union for third largest Cosa Nostra in the country.
2: This is Albert Beraducci. He grew up in Providence at a time when organized crime
3: was a daily part of life. You could see someone getting shaken down.
5: Yeah.
3: I mean you knew you got somebody by the car banging again, you know, two guys looking the other way. But that was the way life was back then. There was no two ways about it. I mean it was accepted.
6: No one. Not a politician or a priest.
7: Not a bishop or a bus driver. Should ever be defined
6: solely by their faults.
2: At Buddy's funeral, the church is packed with people from his past. Cops, politicians, and judges sit shoulder to shoulder with crooks and ex-cons. They all grew up together, attended school together, went to each other's weddings and funerals.
8: That those in public office may promote justice and peace, while continuing the work of our brother, Mayor Vincent A. Cianci Jr. Let us pray.
9: Lord, in your divine providence, hear
2: our prayer. I'm Mark Smirling, And I'm
10: Zach Stewart-Pontier. You're listening to Crime Town, the new series in partnership with Gimlet Media. Every season we'll investigate the culture of crime in a different American city.
2: First up, The story of Buddy Cianci and the city that made it, Providence, Rhode Island. It's a story of alliances and betrayals, of heists and stings, of crooked cops and honest mobsters. A story about how organized crime corrupted an entire city. A story where you can never quite tell the good guys from the bad guys. Welcome to Crime Town. See, we get two governments in this country. We get the United States
3: government, and we get the government of crime.
5: There's two objectives, I think, is to get the money and don't get caught getting the money.
3: <laughs> a lot of things are done that shouldn't be done, but they're done. That's the way the city of France is run. Got to learn that corruption was a part of the culture here. We hit him with this two-by-four, burnt his eyelashes off with a cigarette, told the kid he was going to cut his head off. I don't think they understood how deep the corruption ran. My name is Buddy Cianci, and I'm the mayor of Providence. As you know, I've been indicted by federal prosecutors. I assure you that I'm not guilty of these charges. They're based on self-serving statements of criminals.
1: Your husband beat
11: you up, filed for divorce, and now the FBI kicked in your doors. What are you going to do now?
1: I said, Well, I guess I'm not going to Disney.
11: I made this
10: fucking state more money. I gave this state more fame. I loved coming back
3: here. I loved being in Rhode Island. Everybody's got some crazy shit going on. Well, first of all, let me thank you for inviting me. This is one of the few free speeches I've given in the past. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate it. They called me and they asked me, do you believe in free speech? I said, of course. They said, well, you're giving one. <laughs>
2: this is a recording of Buddy Cianci at the end of his career at an event to promote his autobiography, just a few years before he died. He's bald, stocky, with bags under his eyes. Life has worn him down a bit, but he's still the same old Buddy. He laughs at himself, cracks jokes, works the crowd and tells funny stories about starting out as a young prosecutor.
3: Well, I used to be in charge of the Organized Crime Division for the Attorney General, and my entertainment was I would listen to the wiretaps. There was a bookmaking operation going on, and and so I was listening to the tapes, and this one woman is saying to the other woman, do you know, my boyfriend said that these phones might be tapped. And she said, don't worry, my boyfriend told me what to say if the cops come. (laughs) The other one said, what's that? And she said... My boyfriend told me to plead the fifth commandment.
2: (laughs) This time that Buddy's reminiscing about, more than 40 years ago, that's when our story begins. Buddy is fresh out of law school, younger and thinner, with a lot more hair. He's just beginning his new job as an assistant attorney general, and a case lands on his desk a case that will launch his career and put him head to head with the most notorious mob boss in the country. It's a murder case. April 20th, 1968, a car pulls up to Penone's Meat Market. Two men, Pro Lerner and Bobby Fairbrothers, sit up front, wearing masks.
12: Pro Lerner had a double barrel 12-gauge shotgun, and Bobby Fairbrothers had a Springfield rifle.
2: That's former Providence police detective Robert Stevenson. The gunmen get out of the car and cross the street. Inside the market are the targets. Two wise guys, Rudy Marfio and Anthony Millay.
12: When Lerner came in with a double-barrel shotgun, shot uh, Marfio first. Bobby Fairbrothers got so scared, he shot into the floor. And Pro Lerner stepped over to the next aisle. (laughs) and shot and killed Millay. And out they went. The masks and the guns and everything, they dumped down on Comerford Street, down on the freight yards.
2: Marfio and Malay lay dead on the ground, and their murder case was assigned to a young prosecutor named Buddy Cianci. Detective Stevenson and Buddy joined forces and started talking to witnesses. But despite there being several other people in the market, no one saw a thing. And the investigation stalled. Then, a break in the case. Buddy got a call from a prison in Massachusetts. A witness was talking about the murders. The witness was Red Kelly. He was a witness who changed over from being a a mafia-type guy over to us. Red Kelly was a big-time crook, serving a long sentence, and he wanted to make a deal. He told investigators that he'd hired the hitmen who killed Marfio and Malay. And he said one other thing. He hadn't acted alone. He'd planned the murders on the orders of Raymond L.S. Patriarca. Who's Raymond Patriarca? Well, he's a key part of our story. The crime and corruption that plagues Providence all goes back to him. And he conducted his business from a rundown storefront filled with dusty cigarette machines and arcade games. It was called the coin What
13: was this?
8: This was coin o so this had been a coin vending store, but actually the uh, headquarters of New England organized crime.
2: Dan Barry is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who's written a lot about Providence.
8: So you would see Raymond would sit here in, a, in, like, a lawn chair, yeah. and he'd have white socks, and he just looked like an old man with a cigar, and he would wave to people, and the cops would wave to him, and everyone knew he was watching everything.
2: From his lawn chair, Patriarca ruled over a kingdom of crime that extended across the country. He was a silent partner in Las Vegas casinos with Frank Sinatra. Whitey Bulger? Maybe you've heard of him? Even he had a kick-up to Raymond Patriarca. And if you ran a card game or a prostitution ring or a numbers racket pretty much anywhere in New England, a portion of your profits went to the boss.
3: I don't care what you did. You want to go break somebody's window, you've got to get permission from Raymond. Again,
2: Albert Beraducci, who grew up not far from the coin in Providence's Italian
3: neighborhood, Federal Hill. Raymond was no chump. It was no chum. That's his business. That's that was the key word. That's his business. That's his business. I own the streets. I own all the illicit activities. I'm the one who built it. I'm the one who started it. This is my money, not yours. This just happens to be organized crime and people don't get fired. They get fired at
0: So I cheated. That was just the first few minutes of the first episode of Crime Town, Divine Providence. This is one of those so-called prestige podcasts, and so it was easy enough to just to give you the first few minutes. Uh, But I thoroughly encourage you to go catch up on the whole thing. It's an easy binge to catch up. Anne, why don't you take us to your pick for Tripod Month, and this is also sort of, anyway... A crime-based one.
1: It is. And in fact, I listened to Crime Town as well, and I found it from this show. So this is a really excellent transition. So this is a show that I ran across by chance. It's called Crime Writers On. And after I finished watching Making a Murder, did you ever end up watching that? No, I, I still need to. And I have really mixed feelings about it because
0: I followed the narrative arc of everyone. Right liking it and then the backlash of it. Uh, and so I feel like I missed the boat, but I really should go watch it at some point.
1: Well, something I think that happened to most of us is that after I finished watching Making a Murder, I turned off the TV and I thought, I have got to know more. I was just really thirsty to find out more information from all the troubling... Uh, things that had been raised by that documentary. So I went online and I read all the articles I could. And then I started looking for interviews or podcasts. And I ran across what at the time was a pretty new show called Crime Writers On. And the concept when these people started the show was as a panel discussion of serial. Uh, A couple of the hosts were obsessed with season one of serial. And they decided they should do a podcast with commentary about it. And the hook to, to all of this is that all four of the panelists are crime writers. And I want to talk just for a minute about who they are. Uh, The panel is hosted by Rebecca Lavoie, who is the digital director at New Hampshire Public Radio. And I asked Andrew Walsh if he knew her, and he does. So there's your DBTL connection right there. Also, her husband, Kevin Flynn, who is a former TV journalist, and I I think currently he works as a PR strategist. And Rebecca and Kevin have written uh, a number of true crime books together. Then there's also Lara Bricker, who is, get this, a journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator. And this guy called Toby Ball, who's a noir fiction novelist, and he's also the business manager at the Crimes Against Children Research Center at the University of New Hampshire. So these are four very interesting, very informed people with kind of a public radio sensibility. And the premise since they started the show has broadened beyond serial to include other podcasts and documentaries and TV shows. And most of them, but not all of them, have a kind of a true crime bent. They've covered Missing Richard Simmons, In the Dark, Westworld, The Night Of, Amanda Knox, that Scientology show that Leah Remini did. So all kinds of different things. And what I really like about what they do is they, they don't just approach a podcast or whatever from a point of discussion of the story. They also dig into it from a, a journalistic and storytelling perspective. So how's the story being approached and handled? What kind of choices the the author is making? How are they shaping the narrative? And so while on the surface, uh, Serial season one was about Adnan Syed and the murder of Haman Lee, the true story of Serial was About Sarah Koenig and her investigation of the crime and Crime Writers On really examined that from from both of these aspects of the show. So the clip that I've chosen to feature is part of a longer discussion that they had recently about the HBO documentary Tickled which I think came out last August. Uh, In the documentary, there's there's a TV journalist who – he's one of those guys that does kind of the fluff human interest stories, uh, kind of silly stuff. And he found a bunch of videos online of something called competitive endurance tickling, which is essentially young men strapped down and tickled by other young men. Clothes on, totally – I understand why you're interested now. Yes, totally non-sexual, so they say. So he sends an email to the production company and he gets this super weird um, homophobic slur-filled response. And it's so over the top and so egregious that he decides that he's got to find out what's going on. And he eventually finds himself in this very kind of creepy universe of this – Competitive endurance tickling and ultimately makes this documentary. And so they watch on Crime Writers On, they watch the documentary, and this clip has a bit of both the discussion of the actual story and a journalistic evaluation. So let's roll that clip.
14: Now, I want to take a step back from sort of the journalistic process and the filmmaking process, and I want to talk about this tickling thing because it is a central theme. (laughs) Um, <laughs> and it's an interesting film for me because I think it, w- it would be very tempting to make a whole documentary about this weird tickling thing. It's a fetish is really what it is. And the way the film handles it is that the filmmakers go and talk to somebody in Florida who has a legitimate business, who isn't operating in secret and who isn't a crazy Internet bully,
7: unrelated, f- unrelated from person, the principal people in the film who
14: makes money making these tickling videos and we sort of see the other side of it—the sort of consensual participant side, sort of. Um, Toby, I'd love to—I just love to hear your thoughts about this scene. I mean, obviously, we're not judging people. Whatever people are into, they absolutely have their—you know—people can be into whatever they want to be into. But just sort of like the whole idea of of tickling as a fetish, the visuals of this, sort of the way that guy explained it. I don't know, like, what were your thoughts about just like this whole community and, and this whole genre of, of fetish?
6: Well, I thought that that part of it was really put there to show sort of the sexual nature of the whole tickling thing,
5: mm-hmm.
6: because I think at the beginning, you know, it, it sort of presented as a desexualized, I mean, it's clearly sexual when you actually watch it, but but the way that it's being talked about by the people who are putting on or or trying to get people to come and do Jane the O'Brien yeah. Media Yeah, exactly. is trying to desexualize it. So then when they go to Florida with this guy who's seems like a fairly mild-mannered otherwise kind of normal guy. Typical the, the, mild-mannered the, the, pornographer.
14: He's an entrepreneur. Uh, yeah, I mean he just he, well,
6: I mean I think he, he realized that he'd always had this kind of fetish and then found out that you know other people did too, so he didn't feel so weird about it and then started making videos. But I do think, like, A, just the nature of what was happening, and then B, the way that that part of it was shot, especially at the end, really made very clear its sexual material. Right. You know, at first I was like, this seems like kind of a a weird, like, digression. But I think if they hadn't done that, the whole sexual aspect of things would have been completely lost. Mm
14: Mm-hmm. Now, Laura, we did see, though, you know, Jane O'Brien Media had set up these tickle cells in <laughs> impoverished middle America. You know, they were going to MMA. They had, they hired local recruiters going to MMA matches to find poor young men to recruit. You know, at the beginning, we see that competitive tickling team of all their young men, like a boy band. We see mm-hmm. that covert operation around that shoot in L.A. with all those very young men. And now knowing what we know about the real purpose of these videos, did you get sort of like a real icky, like predatorial vibe from from this whole section where we saw how he that, you know, Jane O'Brien Media was like luring these young men into this enterprise?
15: Yeah, I think this might be the point where I turned to my husband um, who watched it with me and I said, yeah, this is how pedophiles groom children Mm -hmm. that they're going to molest. Yeah, it it just was really off, really (laughs) sketchy and you know, the way that they are preying upon um people that are vulnerable, that need the money, that don't necessarily realize what they're getting drawn into until it's too late. And tickling is definitely something that's, it's a sign of dominance. And and I think it's also kind of a form of torture in a way. So I think it's sort of this like control over other people. So it's not necessarily this fun little thing that you think it is. But I can also, and and you know, this is just kind of icky, but um, you know I can see how when say there's somebody that's maybe in a position of authority over a young boy, tickling's kind of that first way they might try to kind of touch them. Mm-hmm. So it's just it, the, the whole thing. Just I was like, ugh, yeah. When I was watching this, I was like, mm, interesting.
6: I think Jerry's the Jerry Sandusky stuff involved tickling in the shower.
14: Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It is. It, it, it is actually a form of dominance because it is something that like. You know, and even if you think about, like, when you tickle your kids, like, when they start to get really uncomfortable, like, you stop. Like, it's funny for you, but it's really not funny for them after, you know, after certain, you know, you stop. Of agony. Yeah. Yeah. And this fetish really seems to be about the point at which you you can't, you're not stopping because the person is literally tied down. That's what the fetish seems to be based on, right?
7: Yeah. You you know, in general, for for, for the entire documentary, any sort of sexual aspect to the Tickling is is kind of played down, and the part where we go to Orlando and meet this other guy who's not related to Jane O'Brien Media and is doing this on his own. I think it was important because it goes to motive. Mm -hmm. Why why are these videos going on? Because they weren't very clear in the beginning. This isn't a spoiler. The videos that are being made are not being sold.
14: They're not being advertised. They're not being
7: advertised. No one is subscribing to them. It doesn't appear like they're making any money off of them. Right. And large sums of money are being doled out for people to come. Right. So this you know, is where the plot thickens. And as to, okay, well, why? And having, uh, you know, a quasi-sexual component to the act and the videos is something worth pondering. But there there are so many larger questions about how this empire was formed, what their real motives are, how they're financed. Why are they so eager to go after anybody that they see as a perceived threat, including, you know, a soft news journalist from New Zealand, who wants to do a, a funny documentary about them. All they had to do was say, No, we're not interested in participating. Right. And usually that's where most stories die.
14: Yeah, I mean.
7: They didn't have to go like all Burgermeister, Meisterburger on them and then decide, Oh, yeah, well, we gotta. <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay, I think there's something around. What's going on As here? we
14: saw in the documentary, though, this happened to a lot of other journalists and a lot of other people who mm-hmm. had. I mean, there were. The one sort of question I still have is the. Like, unbelievably sophisticated computer hacking skills that seem to be involved in part of the uh, recrimination. How would the whoever is behind this take down the computer network at a university? <laughs> I mean, there's, like, a lot going on here that I have questions about. But, Kevin, I have a more practical question for you because you said to me during the documentary that is a good, like, journalistic slash pop culture thing that mm-hmm. I just don't know a lot about. There was a stakeout at one point in a documentary in, outside of that production studio in Los Angeles where all those, we saw all those young men kind of going in as if they'd been recruited, trying – to think mm-hmm. they're trying out for a reality mm-hmm. show or whatever. And there's that super creepy sound. You can hear the laughing from outside the building. <laughs> yeah. But then they decided to go ahead and, like, we're going to go in, which is a scene I think we've seen in so many, like, reality-based TV things like uh-huh. Cops or – remember that show Cheaters? Yeah, uh,
7: 60 Minutes.
14: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. To Catch a Predator. You know, we yeah. sort of see that. But you sort of had – you were like, no, no, you're not doing it right, guys. Like, what is the right way to do that?
7: If you're staking out a, a location, you can either sit tight mm-hmm. and do that in silence and slip away in silence without them ever knowing – You can – kind of a little art of war here. You could also kick down the door and go in and and rush them and – Literally kick on the door, just walk in. Walk in, cameras rolling, what's going on here. Let them kick you out on camera. Let them kick you out on camera, see what's inside. Or you can pull a punch. And do the and do the thing that is the worst result of either of those situations, which is what they did.
14: Storm the castle but not actually go in the
1: door? You wouldn't do that?
7: Uh, yeah.
14: <laughs>
1: There's no point in storming
7: the castle, telling everybody you're here, and then not doing anything.
1: So I don't know if this clip makes anybody want to watch this documentary. This is one of the times when I'm like, damn it, I don't have HBO. I've got to figure out how to get my hands on it. Um, but it sounds like a very, very... Creepy, strange situation, and and uh, I really enjoy the thoughtfulness that they bring to it. It's it's a great podcast. It's full of uh, all kinds of different uh, different things for different people. They have uh, great senses of humor, and I I it's the podcast that I now do with my baking.
0: Excellent and a perfect transition because I have a solution to your lack of cable. For HBO, And that is that once we're done taping this, I will give you Meredith's HBO Go username and password.
1: <laughs> Don't you think we should ask Meredith? Uh,
0: Meredith, you're going to hear this. Uh, I'm giving Anne your username and password. Actually, I think they're Duff's, but that's fine. Um, speaking of Meredith, uh, we're going to go next to Meredith's recommendation. And uh, we had the other hosts write up a little something uh, because then Anne and I didn't have to share the spotlight with them on actually hosting this show. Right. And Meredith brings us this. Uh, She brings us a clip from an episode of The Adventure Zone, and here's what she writes. The Adventure Zone is a Dungeons & Dragons podcast created by the three McElroy brothers and their dad, Clint. You may know them from their other podcast, My Brother, My Brother, and Me. Before listening to this show, I didn't know anything about D&D and had no interest in it, so it took a few episodes for me to get into this show, but now I am completely hooked. The youngest brother... Griffin creates story arcs that last around 10 episodes each in which he builds a scenario and the others work together to reach a goal or solve a mystery or right a wrong. It's funny, creative and improvisational. And as the story arcs continue, the personalities of each character get more interesting and fleshed out. Here are three fun facts about the universe they've created. There is a city called Rockport where every resident is Tom Bodette. <laughs> Travis's character, Magnus, has a pet goldfish named Steven, who lives in a magic snow globe. And they gear up before each new arc at a store called Fantasy Costco, which is staffed by Garfield, the Deals Warlock. The clip I've brought is from episode four in the first campaign called Here Uh, Here There Be Gerblins. The three heroes, Magnus, Taco, and Merle are in a cave with their employer, Gundren Rockseeker, and they are in the midst of a battle with a villain named Magic Brian, who has a vaguely German accent. Magic was added to his name in order to distinguish him from his pet spider named Brian with a Y. Language alert. And also, this is from the very end of the episode, and it's a bit of a spoiler, so consider yourself warned.
11: I stand up to my full wizard wizarding height. Which is two foot higher with the hat. Yeah, excellent. And then I shout Abraka, fuck you!" And I, <laughs> and I cast magic missile at him. Okay. <laughs> Four. Oof. Oof. How does fifteen points of damage taste? Uh, you actually oh. you blast him back away. The the force of the spell uh, hurts him a lot. Uh, he he goes flying backwards. Uh, and he, he lands, uh, fairly close to the edge of the pit, um, near, near Gundren, uh, and he stands up, and he is, man, all jacked up. He's got, he's bleeding from both nose nostrils. His shit is wrecked, uh, but he's still alive. Uh, and he says, uh, you see, it seems like you've learned well from me, maybe. Did you maybe <laughs> take a few pointers from my, my rad magic missile? <laughs> or was that a taco original? <laughs> I I actually already said my one cool thing, darling. I I don't have another... I I understand completely. Well, you know, when they they make a movie of this, Mike Myers is going to play both of them. Mike Myers will play all the roles. Um, (laughs) He'll play all of us. uh, It seems to me... It seems to be my turn. Um, I keep sort of oscillating between, like, taco and German. I want to really land in the German wheelhouse. Let me try again. Uh, Yes, it seems that... uh, it seems that my goose might be cooked. Huh? Uh, so uh, just, just one more trick up my sleeve, and we'll see how you respond to this. Uh, and he grabs Gundren by the scruff of the neck uh-huh. and rolls off into the pit with him. Oh, shit. Uh, but then you see, uh, at the same time, uh, two small dwarven hands uh, reach up and grab the pit. Uh, reach up and grab the edge of the pit. And then you see two more small dwarven hands reach up and grab the side of the pit. And uh, almost simultaneously, two Gundren Rockseekers pull themselves back up uh, onto stable ground. Who would have seen that coming? I didn't. Uh, And uh, one Gundren Rockseeker, we'll we'll call him uh, the Gundren Gundren Rockseeker on the right, uh, looks at the other one and says, Oh my God. Okay, I... I think I see what he's trying to do here. Listen, you have to understand, I'm the real Gundren Rock Seeker. You have to believe me. I, I, I can tell you anything you want to know about the Rock Seeker clan. I can tell you anything you want to know about Phandalin. You have to believe me. I'm the real Gundren Rock Seeker. And the Gundren Rock Seeker on the left says, No, you must believe me. This <laughs> one right on the right here is an imposter. I'm the real Gundren Rock Seeker. How do ask we me, tell them apart? Ask me anything you want to know about dwarves. But which one's the real Gundam Rock Seeker? <laughs> is it possible... He has cursed the other Gunther and Roxy here to sound German and weird. That's exactly I, what he did. That, he's a bad boy. He's a bad boy with lots of all kinds of sinister magics. I walk over and kick that one into the pit. <laughs> Which one? The one who just talked. Oh no! Oh, the mystery <laughs> is solved. You've solved my final riddle. You are the riddle. <laughs> Jeez, how deep is that pit? Hello,
6: it's his voice?
11: Congratulations. You have proven
5: yourself. It's pretty
11: adventure. <laughs> oh, i landed on Brian. Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brian. I'm so proud of him. <laughs> I'm going to die now. My okay. life <laughs> is flagging from my
5: body. <laughs> I see my family.
11: <laughs> Goodbye, <Kua>. <laughs> <laughs> I had <laughs> my... <laughs> I cast magic missile at him again. <laughs> oh, it's very bad news. Ow! Oh, oh,
6: Academy Award goes to Brian. That
11: was great shit. That was good acting. That was primo.
0: I was surprised how much I enjoyed this clip, considering I know absolutely nothing about Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Yeah, I I started listening to a few of those a while ago. It just it didn't quite take. For me, sometimes, you know, how you have to let something grow on you. And I had so many other podcasts in my feed that I let it fall. But I really do want to go back to it because they're they're so funny, these guys. They just have a really random senses of humor and they can make comedy out of anything.
0: Yeah, and Meredith noted in her message to us, um, many of these scenes from the podcast have been animated, including this one. So I'm going to put the link to the YouTube clip of the animation uh, in the show notes here, if you want to check that out, it's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and they have a really a robust fan group and Facebook page. And they really, in a lot of ways, remind me of the 10s because they're very, um, a very close-knit group, I would say. And if I can segue into the next podcast, uh, somebody else who has a lot of fans is the actress Anna Ferris. With a hard
0: on. Yes, as Christy wrote.
1: <laughs> she has a podcast called Anna Ferris is Unqualified that I also listen to. In fact, I just listened to this episode a few days ago. And Christy says about the show My choice for tripod is Anna Ferris is Unqualified. That's Anna with a hard on. Although you may hear in the clip, I don't remember. Uh, Joel McHale could not remember that for the life of him.
0: I noticed that. Mm hmm.
1: Uh, each week, she puts out a one and a half to two-hour show with a different celebrity guest. Anna interviews them about their lives and journey, and then makes them do some light improv. Anna's reoccurring characters are Karen Sarducci, the head of Imaginarium Studios, and Kayla, the worst date slash movie extra ever. They are annoying and hilarious. The show is at its core an advice show, and with the understanding that they are unqualified to give any advice, think. TBTL is callmakers and OPP. This clip is Anna, her producer Sim, and Joel McHale giving advice to a caller. Fuck you, Sim.
16: I don't know anything either. Sim. I except just for got, except that. Except I, I, I just got and I got it. I haven't. Hello, Michael
11: hey, Matthew Matthew <laughs> Matthew. That's Joel McHale. But first, meet Anna.
16: Hi, hi. How are you, Matthew?
9: Matthew, Good, uh, you do you know who Anna Ferris is? Oh, yes.
16: <laughs>
9: do you know who Sim Sarna Sarna, Sarna is?
16: Joel's trying to make a yes, weird... I do. He's okay, where are you going here, Joel?
9: <laughs> Have you ever heard of the movie Spy Kids Four?
4: <laughs> Spy Kids Four, which you're in, of course. Yes, all right. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Michael's done his research. He has. And- some some random TV show, I think, too. All right, good. <laughs> <Thank you>. That's... <laughs>
9: I will take that is the, possibly the best thing I've ever heard. All right,
4: so you've got some relations. Oh, my God, guys. yeah. So,
9: Matthew, I mean, you're faced right now with this interesting decision regarding your ex-girlfriend. Give us a little background.
4: Okay, so kind of to sum things up, um, me and my girlfriend started dating almost three years ago. I was a junior actually junior in college um and she was still a senior in high school what's her full name what's that
16: no don't listen to him. where does
9: she live what's her address She has <laughs> been
16: hazing me so hard All right. hey joel
9: maddie keep going Quiet. so you broke up a while ago and you were in college together and then what happened
4: <laughs> so kind of So she's we still dating, in college um yeah she's still in college we were dating for a while um i'm out of college now and i graduated in december and kind of a few months before that thank you thank you nice um a few months before that um my parents offered me a decision to make for a graduation trip kind of as a present you know and everything like that very grateful for them so um i asked her to come during the time we were dating and we kind of had everything planned out a couple months ago um flights are all paid for this is in june so about four months from now um, we'll be gone for three weeks, and then about two of those weeks, um, we'll be spent together, just us two, during the trip that's in France and Italy. So um, just recently, we had a two-week break. Uh, that was her decision. For the break, you know, she thought we should just kind of grow on our own, kind of work on ourselves individually. She thought we become kind of too dependent on each other. So I agreed to it for her request. You know, I want to respect what she wants to do. And then just a couple of days ago, we were able to talk on the phone and she decided that she doesn't want to be in a relationship right now and, you know, enjoy her college experience, um, which I respected that decision. I can't really hold it against her. I can't tell her not to do something. Um, you know, I want her to have her own experience in college like I did. Um, so the question is, there's kind of a couple to them. It's, you know, how should, as we're trying to become friends now, trying to, you know, stay as friends, stay in contact, what? What, what would be the decision to make for the trip, you know?
9: Oh, it sounds like it'd be great if you brought her along, dude.
16: Well, okay. so, okay. so No! You know, <laughs> yeah, I know. Here's the thing. Here, Joel doesn't understand human emotions.
9: I, I just feel like they're unnecessary. <laughs>
16: um, but uh, but uh, he just gave me like a wicked Jim Carrey... Glare over there. Was no, it was amazing. It was no, amazing. Thank you. Um, thank you. I'll take but, it. But so she still wants to go on the trip. Why? I mean, because it's—is it just simply Europe, or is it be with you? Like, have you examined her? Have you asked her about?
11: She wants to go as friends. That's what she told me yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's yeah, a horrible so I, person. I've asked her. I, I
4: want to make sure that she's going for the right reason still. Yeah. And when I've asked her, I said, you know, I want you to go because you want to be with me and like have a good trip with our family and have an enjoyable time in Europe together. And she,
9: hold on one second, I'm asked, gonna you know, scream. To go is your son up, me? Anna? Is he awake? All right, hold on. Your name is well, Mark Matthew. 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 Matt.
5: Matt. <laughs> Are you an idiot? <laughs>
10: Are
9: you an idiot? She wants
10: a free he, trip, we?
16: Yes, but he loves her still.
9: Oh, uh, yeah, but it's over. He's, don't you, you're just well, gonna I, torture I, yourself? I do. Further. Yes, I do. Think That's like getting like. Well, here's oh, a, I had yeah. my appendix out. Oh, really? How was it? Oh, it's still. They're still taking it out.
16: I'm only having
9: parts of it taking out. It's it's a it's a twelve step process. I completely
16: agree. No, right now,
9: right now, Matthew's thinking that there's a chance that he may be able to get back together with her
11: if he brings her on the trip with him, and I think that's a terrible idea.
16: I do too. I think also you gotta be in Europe, single man, not on like not trying to woo, not be being worried about this girl's feelings and stuff. Um, But
9: I think. She should be put to, on I a think, raft and shoved down the Colorado I think River. You need to tell I
15: think <laughs> there
9: you you go. Need, <laughs> for even going like okay we just go as friends. It'll be fun. We can both date each other, you know, other people while we're there in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> dude, dude. Are you uh okay uh, uh, I don't know. You obviously listen to this podcast a lot, right? Hey. Yes. Yeah. All right. So you've heard it before.
16: Yes, which is why he's calling it.
9: Right, which is really nice of you.
16: Thank Thank you. you I take it as a compliment too,
9: Joel. Wow. This is now you're seeing a side of. Anna. And (laughs) awe. That. But if I assume most of your friends are going, are you fucking crazy to kick that lady to the curb, save that money. Then you go, you take that, you take it to Rome or you take it to Florence or wherever you're going, and you have a nice big meal and say, thank God I am not with that woman anymore who just wanted to go as friends. That is a terrible idea. She is is a uh, selfish person. If you break up with somebody, it's broken, and it will be a really bad thing if you allow her to walk all over you by paying a tr- for her trip to go to Europe with you. She's I'm getting too worked up. She's using you don't no, do you agree? If you uh, if I hear about you taking your ex-girlfriend <laughs> to Europe, I will fly to Europe and I'll hit you in the face with some sort of local bat. Like if you're in England, it'll be a it'll cricket be a cricket back. bat. If it's Italy, it'll be a very hard piece of pasta. It's very thick. But uh okay. <laughs> but are you if this is move on it is time to meet a nice Italian lady and you're going to France too?
4: Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And you're going with your family? With the family for about a week and then after that for about two was weeks. Was the, the arrangement going to be
9: you were going to sleep in the same hotel rooms together?
4: That would that's the plan as of when we were dating, so.
16: I think I feel like you know you're you're probably still a little heartbroken and he's in love with her yeah take
9: the word door out of the way of the your first name and just be
16: Matt. (laughs) (laughs) that was really dumb
9: (laughs) probably the dumbest that's the dumbest thing i've ever said
16: (laughs) it
9: was was funny it was a good joke no it's terrible joke doormat doormat's funny now, see, you had to say it out loud <laughs> to confirm the joke. Makes it even worse. Dude, if we hear that you're back together, she has to come. She has to make the effort to come. She is going to be upset. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to say you're not coming on the trip. We're not together. She is going to be pissed and that she is not able to go to Europe with you, and she is going to – uh, give you a pretty hard time about oh, it. Yeah. I bet you she. If she doesn't, hey, great. But she's going to give you a hard time. Like, but you invited me on this trip. It was just going to be us together. But I so and and so me breaking up with you was like a big deal. Yes, it was. It's a deal breaker. Deal breaker. Welcome to the podcast.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
9: uh, Anna, do you want
16: to
11: want to say anything at the no, end here? I
16: I, th- I think that uh I think you got to tell her like um. We're broken up, and I, so I don't think Europe is a good idea. Even you know, as you know, as friends and and Frank. I mean, Joel put it better than I did. But
9: I was she, just yelling a lot. But uh,
16: but this. <laughs> but she's not your friend because any normal person would be able to respect your feelings after breaking up with you and not suggest that they continue
9: on the Europe trip.
16: Any normal person, no matter yeah. what age you are, a good person would say. Even if you suggested it and said, like...
4: Do you want to be friends with her? Of course not. But you, you want to yeah, be her boyfriend. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think it'll be easier after, you know, a couple, like, another month passes, and I'll be able to really realize that. If
8: yeah. you don't yeah. so. And
9: for whatever you do, don't think this... If, you, if, she, if she gives you a guilt trip... Yeah, and then she's going to get into Brilliant your head. Maybe, and if she dangles something, or she, if you think in your head, maybe we will get back together. Maybe this trip will do it. Walk into a mirror for me, or slam your head into a door <laughs> because it's not that is definitely not going to happen, and it's definitely not a way to be in a relationship because it it's makes you it. a groveling, sad person. Uh,
10: and
16: I love the idea of you having like even with even when you're with your family. I remember like hooking up with guys when after my parents like went to bed in italy you know and like
9: yeah i was there too out, like <laughs> and i was like oh look who's at yeah. it again
4: <laughs> i was their uh, yeah. personal assistant for many years Friend,
16: <laughs> french ferris that's what they call me was, so
4: would you would you suggest like just traveling on my own after, yes, you know, yeah. alone, yes alone yes yeah, alone definitely be- i went to
9: italy for a, uh, a a month by myself and um it's- it's, it's it's a wonderful way to grow up. It, it it's, really is, and and also uh, this your your family is going to Italy as a group, then sending you out alone or with not with uh, just take the money, but it's a luxurious, wonderful problem, and that uh, most people don't even get near Europe, and or any or travel anywhere because everyone has to get a job and support themselves. But uh, you are in a luxurious position where your family is very cool in taking you. So uh, don't take that for granted and uh, go yeah, enjoy course. that. And uh, But know that you're in a you, – uh, for whatever reason, your dad and mom were able to make enough money to send you, you over there with them. And so uh, so there you go. And uh, you can find – you can go all, to all the spots that Anna, uh, Anna, Ina – <laughs> uh, got together with dudes uh the trevi fountain uh yeah. the uh the uh the capital capital line the Capitol, sistine, <laughs> sistine chapel oh that was hot yeah
16: um but no but I, I, and also to that point though i think that uh if you could imagine right now go being in the, those hotel rooms with her without fighting or without any drama i don't that I, that to me is not a world where that exists
14: yeah, um, she's so, going to
16: go
9: out without him. And then you'll right. be sitting there in the hotel room going you're, like, you're tri- now really, I'm in Italy being miserable, stringing this stupid thing along. There's a
16: massive likelihood that she will ruin your trip.
9: And your life. So <laughs> when are you going on this trip?
4: Uh, middle of June.
9: Okay. So are you doing a podcast in early July or late June? Hell yeah. All right. So your requirement is to call this podcast back in... Early or uh, right before we'll say, you yeah. go on the trip, or, or right after the trip. Right yeah. after, sure. And if you go on that trip with your ex girlfriend, uh, they're going to have me back. Yeah. Yes, of course. I will be shooting a movie <laughs> in Gibraltar at that point. Well, we'll, we'll, but I will we'll Skype you in. <laughs> I don't Skype. You don't Skype. No, okay. I can't. You'll do fly, in. Gonna fly, gonna
16: fly in. He's going to. He's going to fly everywhere. in. From, I'm going to sure.
9: fly in just for it, so we can yell at you. That sounds fair. Okay.
11: That's fair.
16: If you're in Gibraltar, though, you could probably just hop over.
9: Easily. True. But just hop into Morocco and then run around.
16: <laughs> no. Well, yeah. And just fly. You could just bop yeah. over to Italy. I'm saying check in Ooh. on Matthew. And-
9: no. I'd rather come back here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, Matthew. Right. The wine and the Yeah, Russians. Matthew. Matthew, thank you so much. you so much. Matthew.
16: Oh boy! Don't be a loser. It's tough, and you know what? The heart—it'll like it'll get better with every day. You know, like the the. Of course. Your heart will become more and more numb.
9: Matthew, this like is this is the right. Are. <laughs> don't worry. Eventually, you you'll lose all feeling <laughs> and be a robot. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> Thank, you, Thank
16: so Matthew. you, Matthew.
9: Thank you guys. So we love much. you. We Have it.
16: a great time in Europe. I love
9: right, you. So I don't really know too. you. Thank you so much. <laughs> bye. Twenty-three. All right, bye.
1: Bye. Whoa. <laughs> Can I just say that I really like Sim, but it's an in-joke for the podcast that honest says fuck you, Sim, and pretty much every episode, so I thought Christy just figured it would be hilarious to make me say that, <laughs> but it's a great podcast. She is funny and warm, and she is the most grounded and normal celebrity you could ever possibly come across, and she really seems to care about the people that she gives advice to, so I, I, that's another show that I really enjoy. That's great.
0: Uh, another slick transition here, because uh, speaking of Christy uh, means we can talk about her husband, Jeremy. That's that's a good transition, right? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. We'll take it. So uh, we had Jeremy also do this. And in fact, Jeremy submitted a podcast that I almost submitted as well. Uh, and it's a podcast that he and I have both been, uh, you could say, nerding out about uh, for a while now, ever since he introduced it to me and I marathoned it. It's called Whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's? And it's a show about uh, the question and the examination of the question, Whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's? Uh, Let me read you what Jeremy writes here. Hey, friendos. Jail dude might have taken away my microphone, but he can't take away my keyboard. My pick for hashtag tripod is a show called, quote, Whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's? move over Richard Simmons, and get the F out of my ears, S-Town, because this show is definitely the top prestige podcast in my Zune. Whether you're looking for answers to the age-old question, whatever happened to pizza at McDonald's, or just want to see how deep down the inside to the power of inside podcast world you can get, and then parenthetically, I'm guessing if you're listening to a podcast about a podcast, talk about podcasts they like, you're ready for a journey to the (laughs) bottom of the sea, This is the show for you. What are you
1: talking about?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty meta. Uh, For my clip, I've selected all of episode two. Don't worry, though. Unlike the amount of time it takes to cook a pizza at McDonald's, spoiler alert, this won't take long. I'm so excited to share this with you. I added that last part.
8: Welcome to Whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's, a podcast where I ask the question, Whatever Happened to the Pizza at McDonald's? A proud part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Brian Thompson. Let's call McDonald's and see whatever happened to their pizza. Hello, McDonald's. Hi. Do you remember when McDonald's used to serve pizza? No, I don't remember. You have
1: a good night. Thank you. McDonald's.
8: Did someone tell you not to talk to me about the pizza at McDonald's? I don't have
1: time for this.
8: Okay, thank you.
1: Hello, McDonald's, this is
8: Ashley. How can I help you? Hi, do you serve pizza?
1: No, we do not.
8: Do you remember when McDonald's used to serve pizza? Do you know who I could talk to to get more information about when McDonald's served pizza?
10: Um, you could probably go online and look that up, or um,
1: you would probably have to call tomorrow during the day.
8: What would I look up online?
1: I, I mean, you could look up online McDonald's, when did McDonald's serve pizza? I mean, sir, I don't even know that we ever served pizza.
8: I believe you did. So I should go to mcdonalds.com and search what happened to the pizza? Yep. Okay, thank you. Yep. McDonalds.com. Search. Whatever happened to the pizza? No information. This week's episode of Whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Have you ever slept in foam? Now you can. And sleep is what you'll have, because these mattresses are foam. I'm going to get one as soon as they take my other mattress away. The man wouldn't pick it up because it's too stained, but another man might. Casper Mattresses. Sleep on a phone. Thanks for listening to Whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at Pizza at McD's for breaking news, updates, or just to get in touch. Do you know what happened to pizza at McDonald's? Do you remember it? How did it taste? Please get in touch and let us know. And come see whatever happened to pizza at McDonald's live at this year's Now Hear This podcasting festival in beautiful Anaheim, California. For tickets, go to com slash pizza at McDonald's and tell them I sent you. Thanks to the Panoply Network for hosting the show. Check out other great Panoply podcasts, like the Downton Abbey Spoiler Special, Mom and Dad are Fighting, Quiet, The Power of Introverts, and much, much more. I'm Brian Thompson.
0: Uh, Believe it or not, this show is still going. He's primarily finished his arc about whatever happened to pizza at McDonald's, except he's recently found out that in his season two, uh, there may be pizza at McDonald's in the Middle East, and Bo Bergdahl may have had something to do with it. So his podcast journalism investigation is taking him down a Bo Bergdahl rabbit hole for his season two. Interesting. Which is pretty great. Uh, and I actually gave $10 to his Kickstarter to go to Pomeroy, Ohio <laughs> to try pizza at the Pizza Hut that still has uh, pizza, rather, the McDonald's that still has pizza. Uh, and I gave it in the name of Little Red Bandwagon. So we are all donors to that last podcast. And I am sure glad about that. <laughs> Phyllis is a producer. So that's a good transition from Jeremy.
1: Yes, indeed. Um Phyllis has two commitments in her listening life, TPTL and Howard Stern. And so how many hours a week do you suppose that is Bobby? Like a hundred um, based
0: on, yeah. Based on how busy Phyllis is, she finds more hours in the day than I thought existed. I don't know when she
1: sleeps. <laughs> so she doesn't have a whole list of podcasts that she listens to. Like the rest of us losers that don't have anything going on. Um, but when she finished listening to all the TBTLs ever, she started listening to another little podcast that actually that Jeremy was on called The Takedown Podcast. And then there was also this guy, Mike, who was also on The Takedown Podcast. I think... Yeah, that,
0: you may have heard of him.
1: Yeah, he had two legs at that point, though. So that's an important difference. And... Yeah. um This is actually a little bit before Jeremy came on the show. It was for the first hundred episodes. It was Mike and his uh, partner, Matt. And this is what Phyllis says about the Takedown podcast. This podcast taught my seven-year-old that swearing is funny. (laughs) You may know Mike had a podcast for a couple years called Takedown. His co-host was Matt from Tenver, who sent Jen and Sean their Spanish lessons back when TBTL was on the radio. In this episode of Takedown, Matt's sister, Mo, presents a list of their dad's, quote, raggedy-ass snack game. You got roasted
17: hot dog on a tortilla or a piece of bread. You got 7-Eleven nachos, smoked almonds. You also have potted meat on saltine
10: crackers. Now, do you remember this extra tidbit, though, Mo? He would dip in on the drawer that was like the junk drawer? Yes.
17: With With, hot sauce? Yes.
10: With the no, no, no. Fuck you. Don't even try to fucking front like this was hot sauce. This shit was the fucking KFC bucket of fucking buffalo wings that you used to be able to get. You're right. You would come with a fucking tube of hot sauce that you could. (laughs) You could sit there like some fucking parolee at a halfway house. (laughs) And fucking take a bite and then put your half-ass dab of hot sauce and take another bite. <laughs> this trife bitch would save them shits in a drawer for for his potted meat sitting there all regal. <laughs> Wait a minute. Potted, this potted meat, did either of you ever partake of oh, the recipe? God. Mo, don't try to fuck front. You know, we dip. This is why I fucking didn't even... Like, I almost feel like I owed it to meat to stop eating it after the <laughs> upbringing that oh, I had. Oh, yeah.
17: I mean, you know, you have little kids around. You got fucking potted meat.
10: Yeah. fucking you, you want some of that shit that dad has. What's that shit? I want to get in that.
12: Well, how did y'all not... Like, most people, they pattern themselves after their parents. You guys seem to really... Z- Zag, where he's in.
10: <laughs>
17: well, we got real uppity when we got older because, um. Because we went out and the saw other thing the thing fucking with my dad world. is that, like, he. If you even put any kind of, like, spice in oh, anything. Yeah. <laughs> Then he claims everything gives uh-huh. him heartburn.
10: Oh, you should have heard this shit. This fool is trying to fucking spout when he was here last. We made we made like because you know we don't cook with meat, so like we we made every effort to get this bitch to eat what we were eating. Oh, I can't hardly eat cucumbers anymore. They give me heartburn. Fucking two.
12: Yeah, 99% water.
10: Oh, they fucking gives me heartburn. The romaine lettuce. Ooh, they give me heartburn.
17: That's that's um that's his go-to excuse for not yeah. branching out into any other kind of cuisine that okay. hasn't been processed 45 times. Heartburn.
12: Let, let me ask you this. Is he a beer drinker?
10: Oh, please. What <laughs> Mo, I'm sure it's on your list. Do you remember the fucking cans of Vienna sausages that dad oh, was putting that's back? that's on here dad my dad used to take a fuck like just and and again either ritz or just straight out the fucking can and he didn't
17: get on the ritz game until we were much older when we were when we were younger it was zesta all the way oh
10: i'm sorry no not uh, yeah how dare i yeah no this was some zesta or some uh what were the other ones saltine that was his. Mm-hmm. That was his jam. Was the uh the saltine with uh the the red box? Because if you got the blue box, which was the low sodium ones, he'd get all in his feels.
12: There should be a, a relabeling program for saltines to just read carbs.
10: <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, and then and the thing with the fucking with the the uh, the saltine crackers is. It's it's really just a vehicle for eating table salt. Like, that's all it is.
17: (laughs) Well, and once you open the package, you can't fucking close that shit up again. So (laughs) you either eat a whole sleeve of crackers or the next time you go to eat crackers, you throw that one away and open a whole other one because that shit is stale by then.
10: Uh, or, or like, do you remember uh, when crackers would go stale? He wouldn't throw them shits out. He'd put them on top, crumble them on top of tomato soup. <laughs> yeah. He was like canned
17: tomato soup, Campbell's
10: canned <laughs> tomato soup. He was like a fucking, like a hobo Indian. Like he figured out a way. He used every part of the zesta. <laughs>
12: I'm, I'm partially in love with this man.
1: <laughs> and I'm coming back in here with a little bit more from Phyllis. She says, what I love about the clip, it's like eavesdropping on a family rank out session. The specificity, the Mexican cultural references and the laughter make it beyond hilarious. TDP is no longer. I recommend listening to episodes 97 and 98 back to back as a single work. And uh, this is me, Ann talking now. If you haven't listened to Takedown, uh, I would say if your feelings are easily hurt, it may not be the show for you because they play rough. But I will say that Matt is like an artist and his medium is profanity. I have never <laughs> listened to anybody who could do with swear words what he does. It's really amazing to listen to.
0: It's it's true. Uh, I, I popped on a couple of times to take down podcast as a guest and once, I think just once with Matt, uh, another episode you can search for where I came on to talk about snacks, actually, but not raggedy ass snacks, <laughs> regional snacks, <laughs> uh, as people know, is one of my passions. Uh, and uh, if you, yeah, I just didn't know you could re- use the word shits. The way Matt uses the word shits. <laughs> I never knew you could dip into them shits or, or dem shits.
1: I always heard that stoners were supposed to be really mellow, but Matt just breaks the mold <laughs> of all of that. Oh, I don't know if Matt will ever hear this, but
0: we love you and we miss you, Matt. Uh, I enjoyed every episode of that show. We'll get you back on for a reunion special someday. Uh, and as long as we're talking about the cast of the Takedown podcast, I guess uh, we can round out our tripod episode with Mike's suggestion. And I think this is going to surprise some people because, as many of our listeners know, uh, Mike hates music. Mm-hmm. Um, he is an enemy of music. He wants to get rid of music. He is the first half of the movie Footloose. Um <laughs> And yet, for his podcast, he brings us a podcast about music, or at least an episode of a podcast that has to do with music. Uh, He brings us an episode of Revisionist History, which is a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell. uh, And this is season one, episode seven. uh, And I'll read what he wrote for us here. When a friend of mine recommended this podcast, she knew I would get sucked in because the first half of the show was dedicated to one of my favorite artists of any type. In Elvis Costello. While this was great hook setting on her part, the song and album discussed on the show is some of the worst work he ever put out. If this clip taken from the second half of the podcast lands, feel free to download the episode and catch that part. But what really got me into the show was the fascinating theme of it based on the guests assertions about two different types of artists, particularly those touched with genius. The man making the assertions is David W. Gallinson. He wrote a book called Old Masters and Young Geniuses. He uses a comparison between somewhat contemporaries Paul Cezanne and Pablo Picasso to demonstrate his point. For brevity's sake, I'll spare you the Picasso part, which is Elvis's hastily published emotional shit on a musical canvas in favor of Leonard Cohen's agonizing evolution of one of the greatest pop songs of all time. He is Cezanne in this scenario. And with that...
13: But there's one field where I think Galenson's theory plays out the most powerfully, and that's music.
5: It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing, hallelujah, hallelujah.
13: That's the song Hallelujah. It was composed by the Canadian songwriter Leonard Cohen, but basically everybody has done a cover of Hallelujah. Rufus Wainwright, U2, Jeff Buckley, Bon Jovi, John Cale, Bob Dylan, I could go on. It's featured in countless TV and movie soundtracks. If you ride the New York City subway on a regular basis, you'll probably hear a busker singing it virtually every day. Like a good Canadian, I go to a Canada Day celebration every year at Joe's Pub in Manhattan, where local artists sing cover versions of Canadian songs. Every year, someone does a version of Hallelujah. Every year, it brings down the house. And here's what's interesting about that song it is so not Picasso, it is Cezanne, textbook Cezanne. A few years ago, the music writer Alan Light wrote an absolutely wonderful book, an entire book, on the song Hallelujah. It's called The Holy or the Broken, and one of the big themes is how peculiar Leonard Cohen is. He's a poet, a tortured poet.
12: He is a writer in that way, that he labors over what these lyrics are, line by line, word by word, throws a lot away, spends a great deal of time, and Hallelujah! famously out of all of these is probably the song that that he says uh, bedeviled him the most.
13: That's Alan Light. He came by my house one day to talk about Hallelujah.
12: He sort of was chasing some idea with this song and couldn't find it and just kept writing and writing and and depending when he tells the story wrote 50 or 60 or 70 verses for this song which
13: is... I I mean (laughs) you've been writing about music for many, many years. Have you ever heard of a musician who wrote 80 different... I don't, I don't
12: think so. I mean, and I don't know what that... I don't know if that means variations on verses. I don't know if that means entirely, like, how much of this is exaggeration. But it, it doesn't matter. It, it's it, at a whole other... It's a whole other... Level. Well, there's the famous story that, uh, you know, Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan have this kind of mutual admiration thing. And apparently they met up in the 80s. At some point they were both in Paris and they went to meet at a cafe. And Dylan said, oh... I like that, that song, Hallelujah, which is a fascinating piece of this story, that really the first person who paid attention to Hallelujah as an important song was Bob Dylan. But he said to Leonard, you know, I like that song. How long do you work on that? And Leonard said, I told him uh, that I'd worked on it
13: for two years. Which was a lie. Cohen later confessed it took him much longer. Then Cohen asks Dylan how long it took him to write the song I and I, And Bob said, yeah, 15 minutes. Dylan is Picasso. With Leonard, it's
12: not the first thought, best thought school at all. And he talks about, you know, being in a hotel room in his underwear, banging his head on the floor because he couldn't solve this song Hallelujah.
13: Leonard Cohen spends five years writing Hallelujah. He finally records it in 1984. It's for an album called Various Positions. When Cohen finishes recording the songs, he takes them to his record label, which is CBS to the head of CBS, who's this legendary figure named Walter Yetnikoff, who's the guy who releases Michael Jackson's Thriller and Bruce Springsteen's Born in USA. Not a dumb guy. Yetnikoff listens to Cohen's songs and says, what is this? We're not releasing it. It's a disaster. The album ends up being released by the independent label Passport Records. It barely makes a ripple. And if you go back and listen to that first Hallelujah and try to forget how beautiful future versions would be, the song's failure makes sense. It's not there yet. There's an essay written by Michael Parthel about the trajectory of Hallelujah, and he calls Cohen's original version so hyper-serious that it's almost satire. Hallelujah! 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 Kind of turgid, isn't it? But Cohen's not done, he keeps tinkering with it. He plays it in concerts and he slows it down. It becomes twice as long. He changes the first three verses, leaving only the final verses the same. The song becomes even darker this time around.
3: Yeah, and I'll sing your
13: flag on the marble
3: arch. But listen, love, love is not some kind of victory march. No, it's a cold and it's ever?
13: One night, Cohen is playing this version at the Beacon Ballroom in New York, and the musician John Cale happens to be in the audience. Cale is a legend, used to be in the Velvet Underground, a really pivotal figure in the rock and roll avant-garde. He hears this song come out of Cohen's mouth, and he's blown away. So he asks Cohen to send him the lyrics. He wants to do a version of it, so Cohen faxes him 15 pages. Who knows what the lyrics actually are at this point? Cale says that for his version, he took the cheeky parts. He ends up using the first two verses of the original, combined with three verses from the live performance. And Cale changes some words. Most importantly, he changes the theme and brings back the biblical references that Cohen had in the album version.
5: Maybe there's a God above All I ever learned from love Was how to shoot at someone who and
13: is really the one who cracks the code of hallelujah according to Alan light hallelujah. this cover version appears on a Leonard Cohen tribute album put together by a French music magazine It was called I'm Your Fan. came out in 1991. Almost nobody bought I'm Your Fan except, weirdly, me. I think I found it in a remainder bin in a little record store on Columbia Road in Washington, D.C. Another person who bought I'm Your Fan was a woman named Janine who lived in Park Slope in Brooklyn. She was good friends with a young, aspiring singer named Jeff Buckley. He used to house-sit at her apartment. And one time, when Buckley's there, he happens to see the CD of I'm Your Fan. He plays it. He hears John Cale's version of Hallelujah and decides to do his own version of that version. He performs it at a tiny little bar in the East Village called Cheney, where he happens to be heard by an executive from Columbia Records. So Columbia Records ends up signing Buckley, and he records his version of Hallelujah for the album Grace, which ends up being Buckley's first and only studio album. It came out in
5: 1994. Remember when I moved in you And the holy dove was moving too And every breath we drew is hallelujah
13: Now, I'm guessing that Buckley's version is the one you're most familiar with. It's the famous one, the definitive one. It's not really a cover of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, it's a cover of John Cale's cover of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, only with Cale's piano swapped out for a guitar. And of course, Buckley swaps out Cale's voice for his own extraordinary voice.
5: Hallelujah!
13: Every subsequent cover, and there have been hundreds, are really covers of Buckley covering Kale covering Cohen. So the evolution finally stops. But wait, not really. Buckley records a
12: song in 1994. Still nobody particularly pays attention to it. I mean, again, in retrospect, we think of Jeff Buckley as this very important figure and this big influence on Radiohead and Coldplay. And, but nobody bought Grace. Nobody bought Jeff's record when it came out. It peaked at number and. 60 on the charts, or something. It was a huge disappointment after all the hype around him. So that didn't make it a hit.
13: Buckley is this incredibly handsome man, looks almost ethereal, like Jesus, with that incredible voice. But none of that is enough until 1997 when something tragic happens. Buckley's in Memphis and he goes swimming in one of the channels of the Mississippi. He's wearing boots and all his clothing and singing the chorus of Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin. And he vanishes never seen again. And that tragedy suddenly propels his work and Hallelujah into the spotlight.
12: And it's really kind of, you know, as you hit the new century, that's when the snowball kind of starts. The first few covers, the first few soundtrack placements. It's 15 years since Leonard recorded this song.
13: 15 years... And think about how many incredible twists and turns that song takes before it gets recognized as a work of genius. It just happens that the independent label Passport Records releases the first version after the album it's on is rejected by CBS Records. Then Leonard Cohen doesn't give up, keeps tinkering and performing new versions of Hallelujah. John Cale, one of the most influential musicians of his era, happens to hear Cohen doing that. He revises the song some more. Cale's version goes out on the obscure French CD I'm a Fan, which goes nowhere except Janine's living room in Park Slope. And Janine happens to have a house sitter who happens to play it, happens to like it, and happens to have an ethereal, amazing voice. Buckley's version goes nowhere until he happens to die under the most dramatic and heartbreaking of circumstances. And then, finally, we recognize the genius of this song. But think about how fragile and elusive that bit of genius is. If any of those incredibly random things don't happen, you probably would never have heard Hallelujah. I don't think this crazy chain of happenstance matters so much with conceptual innovations. Paul Simon once says, A Bridge Over Troubled Water, one of the most beautiful pop songs ever written, It came so fast, and when it was done, I said, Where did that come from? It doesn't seem like me. The song came out perfectly. You can evaluate it right away. It doesn't require 15 years' worth of twists and turns and random events. The world is really good at capturing conceptual creations. Or at least, we don't miss as many conceptual works, because they don't require that the stars be perfectly aligned. But if you're Cézanne, and the first version you produce is just a starting point, and you never know exactly what you're doing or why or whether your work is finished or not, the stars really do have to be aligned. Cézanne was his own worst enemy in a way, He threw up barrier after barrier. He wasn't thinking of us when he painted his paintings. That was really John Elderfield's point. The art of the experimental innovator is elusive.
5: There are some of them which now are in museums, which we know he had tried to destroy.
13: I mean, and you can see in some of them the cases of where he slashed the canvases. Why would he destroy his own canvases? You know, he had... Certain ideas about what he wanted to do, and felt he actually never was actually getting to that point. Mm-hmm. There are other paintings done much later where he simply
12: abandons
13: them. And Picasso said that, you know, what actually engages us is Cezanne's doubt, his uncertainty. He's a, he's obsessive. You no, know, he's absolutely just totally obsessive.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: I have to say, after listening to this clip that Mike pulled, I already went back and pulled the entire episode into my podcatcher so I could hear the whole thing. I love Elvis Costello and I love this Leonard Cohen song, as many people do, Um, and I never thought about them in contrast the way this show did, but it's really interesting.
1: This is a podcast for smart people.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I can keep up with it long term, (laughs) Uh, but I really enjoyed it. I did too. Um, and with that, uh, that is uh, seven podcasts from the seven of us that we wanted to share with you. And we would love to hear about the podcasts you'd like to share with fellow podcast listeners. Post those on the Facebook page. Send us your emails at bandwagon at gmail.com. Tweet at us all that good stuff. We're going to skip the rest of housekeeping today. So until next time, this is the next party.
1: And oh, we love you, Jen.
0: It's just two of us. You nailed it together sure all right three
5: two one
1: nailed it
5: it. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord but you don't really care for music do you well it goes like this the fourth the fifth the minor fall and the major lift the baffled king March, it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. hallelujah. Maybe there's a God above But all I've ever learned from love Was how to shoot somebody who I to you And it's not a cry that you hear at night It's not somebody who's seen the light It's a cold and it's a bright
0: I don't know how I feel about you bringing another podcast about a podcast.